c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not authority. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And today I believe we're doing a missing missing persons case. We are. We are doing what we do best. Shaming our parents. Also that. I bring shame on my parents just by being alive. But in a a specific uh, instance of parent shaming this week, we are going to rubberneck at a mysterious disappearance. So. Yay! Hooray! Uh... Human tragedy. My favorite kind. <laughs> Excellent. When when fish when 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 the mother of a fish dies, it's less poignant because they don't have eyebrows. You can't really see the, the real the real ennui. That sounds like something a twelve year old would think is deep. Fish can't grieve, they don't have eyebrows, like I mean they can grieve, it's just less enjoyable to watch. It kind of sounds like one of those, like, who said it games where you've got to guess if it was, like, an angsty 13-year-old or just a cracked-out 55-year-old. Faux deep prepubescent or schizophrenic. It's a fun game. (laughs) What a toss-up. So this week, we're talking about the disappearance of Ben McDaniel. The scuba-diving disappearance of Ben McDaniel. Just for some some extra flavor. We're not athletes, so we're gonna... Foreshadowing. We're gonna talk about someone who was... So on August 20th, 2010, 30-year-old Ben McDaniel, an experienced scuba diver, disappeared while scuba diving at a spring he'd gone diving at many times before. In the wake of his disappearance, serious questions were raised about whether this was a routine diving accident, a planned disappearance, or something much more sinister. Um, so we're gonna North get into Koreans. it. It's not the North Koreans. I can- North I, Koreans! I know that we made a very good show of- of- demonstrating just how likely it is that the North Koreans snatched you. We, we spent two whole weeks telling you that pretty much everyone and their dog is now living in North Korea teaching English to the Kim Jong-il family, but, uh, no. I'm gonna <laughs> go with no. I don't, I don't think North Korea have started dragging the rivers for spies yet, so. <laughs> so we'll start with some background. Benjamin Wayne McDaniel was born on April 15th, 1980, as the eldest son of the wealthy McDaniel family. His parents, Shelby and Patty McDaniel, raised their three sons in Collierville, Tennessee, which is a small suburb of Memphis. By all accounts, Ben had a somewhat idyllic childhood. There's actually not a ton of information even available about his early life, beyond the fact that he was close to his brothers and parents, and that the boys were quite active and into sports. It was just sort of the quintessential white picket fence suburban upbringing, with nothing to report. Dull. Moving on. Dull. Boring. Um, well, Ben's younger brother Paul was an avid rock climber, and he and Ben frequently climbed together. This is one of the people he was closest to in his life. And at the age of 15, Ben also discovered a love of scuba diving. Apparently, he used to practice with his diving tanks in the family swimming pool. That's fun. It's kind of a fun hobby. It's great. Uh, I grew up in a landlocked hellhole, so I, yeah, that wasn't part of my childhood. I've but, scuba-dived. Uh, have you? Oh, yeah, yeah. In what Grand Prairie puddle? I, I, I had a license in you anything. You have a scuba everything. diving license? It was cold water Ooh, scuba diving, no. though. No, hang on. What? 
Who gave you yeah. a scuba diving license? Uh, a, a Patty? P-A-D-I? Not Patty as in P-A-T-T-Y. I wasn't just given a scuba diving license by some random woman named Patricia, but uh, the uh, the official diving organization. Yeah, I was gonna say some some woman with a trench coat in a Safeway parking lot was just like, "Hey, kid, want a scuba diving license?" And you were like, "Okay, <laughs> here, strap into this tank of air. <laughs> Don't worry about a kid. Jump in this pool." Uh, I actually, yeah, I did. You do you do end up training in a pool? Uh, yes, I've done that. I did, I did kayak training. I was awful at it. I continued to be awful at it. <laughs> I, I learned that I dislike the sensation of drowning. That's about the only thing that I, uh, <laughs> that I gleaned Valuable that. in of itself. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm stunned. I would have thought some stranger lured you into a minivan and strapped swim fins on you. No, no, when just you... my mom. <laughs> mom thought it'd be fun. <laughs> Your mom was like, you know what? If I ever decide, snap, and decide to drown you, I want... I want you to survive that. I, I want to do over on that one. Honestly, my mom has always been really into uh, making sure that I could swim and making sure that I'd be a strong swimmer. So, like, I don't... Like, maybe she was trying to protect me from her own impulses. <laughs> from an early age, she's like, this one's going in a fucking lake. <laughs> she's like, I do not trust you to look where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna walk off a cliff into the ocean. <laughs> Might as well give you a fighting chance. <laughs> but yeah, so so Ben started scuba diving apparently like Jessica in his teen years. That's a weird thing that I didn't think you'd have in common with the victim. <laughs> okay, I'm, you don't I'm, know how much we have in common. You've Let's got a continue. driver's license and a scuba license. I'm genuinely concerned about what other licenses are in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's way too many things you've been permitted to do. Not to mention that during some of the lessons, I would just pass out because of the narcolepsy. So. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this one's narcoleptic and loses consciousness at random. Perfect. <laughs> Put her in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> hook, her up, hook her up to some air tanks and just let her go. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were trying to return you to the primordial ooze. They're like, this one's not done baking yet. Put that back. It was pretty useful, though, because I also know I, know, I know quite a bit of sign language, so my family and I were able to talk quite a bit while we were under the water, which other people found very inconvenient. The fact that you have, like, aquatic communication and scuba abilities just makes you think you're up to something. That's not, you're not helping <laughs> your case. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to assassinate Castro. I'm freelancing for the CIA. And I'm like, yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware he's been dead for a while, but, like, he's got a brother. <laughs> okay, Jessica. Watch yourself, All right. Ralph. <laughs> All right. So while while Jessica is in the Grand Prairie public pool trying to bring about an end to communism, um... <laughs> that is how the CIA tried to kill Castro the one time. They uh they uh booby trapped some seashells because they knew he liked scuba diving. Yep, yeah, I was gonna say they probably didn't employ a narcoleptic asthmatic Canadian, but <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> They'll never see it coming. Oh my god. Um, but despite Ben's promising beginnings, he encountered a great deal of misfortune in his late 20s, and he was in something of a full-fledged crisis by the late 2000s. So in 2008, Ben's beloved younger brother, Paul, passed away suddenly from a stroke at the age of 22, which is a completely devastating thing for the entire family to go through, obviously. Very young. 
this it's incredibly young. He had a he had a ruptured brain aneurysm. Um, two members of my own family had aneurysms this past year, and only one survived because 2019 is the year Janelle wronged some sort of wizard. But it's it's yeah, it's definitely not something that you would expect from a healthy rock climbing 22 year old. I mean, my my relative who passed away from from an aneurysm was a 74 year old chain smoker who occasionally lost consciousness if he inhaled too hard. So it wasn't... Yeah, that's like, kinda... didn't he have to sleep sitting up? <laughs> yeah, this was my uncle. He had to sleep sitting in the Lazy Boy because he'd smoked cigarettes from the age of 11 and uh, he could yeah. no longer breathe while horizontal. Yeah, he used to chain smoke in his car and we'd only know to go get him because he would pass out and hit his forehead on the horn. <laughs> <laughs> but to make things even more difficult on the McDaniel family, it was actually Ben who was the one to find Paul at the at his parents' house. And he tried unsuccessfully to revive his brother. So that's a lifetime of trauma. That is enough trauma for one human being forever. But unfortunately, Ben's life wasn't done shitting on him. He'd also just gone through a very messy divorce and the collapse of a construction business that he had started. And the failure of his business left him $50,000 in debt to the IRS. Kind of a Book of Job situation. With his life kind of in freefall, he ended up moving back in with his parents... And his parents suggested that he take a, quote, sabbatical just to regroup and figure out where he wanted to go from there, which is honestly kind of a solid move if you can afford it. So his parents offered to financially support him while he recovered and got his feet back under him, and they suggested that he go do that at their beach house in Florida. Ben accepted the offer, and in April of 2010, he and his dog moved to his parents' beach house at Santa Rosa Beach on the Emerald Coast of the Florida Panhandle. Being in Florida and having some time away from work allowed Ben an opportunity to get back into one of his favorite hobbies, scuba diving. Although he was living on the coast, Ben actually preferred freshwater diving over saltwater diving. I know nothing about diving, but the internet says that saltwater diving requires more technical knowledge. You have to finagle around with weighted belts in order to get beneath the surface because your body is more buoyant in saltwater. Salt water is uh, denser than uh, fresh water is. Uh, it's it's also you have to pay far more attention to tides. Oh, true. You'll just get sucked into the sea. The ocean is massive and largely uncharted, and it will kill you. <laughs> yeah, the ocean don't give a fuck. But yeah, it requires salt water diving requires more technical knowledge for a number of reasons. I mean, both of these sound like hell. Anything that involves me being in a wetsuit in front of other people. It's just my own personal Vietnam, but it's uh, it's fine. He enjoyed it. It's fine. <laughs> we just have flashbacks to extremely extensive wedgies. <laughs> Not all of us are chunky twenty-six-year-old women with body issues. It's it's fine. It's fine. This isn't about me. It's fine. As a chunky twenty-nine-year-old without body issues, uh, my personal my personal feeling is people seeing me in a wetsuit is their problem. <laughs> Jessica's like, I would I would dive nude if I could. <laughs> I mean, really the only reason why I am not naked right now is just for the risk of sunburn. It's nighttime. What are you- It is not. It is oh. nighttime where you are. <laughs> oh, that's how time works. <laughs> uh, like, a little, little thing you might have heard of, it's called the rotation of the earth. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing at- 1024 that you're in risk of burning your butt cheeks. <laughs> Anytime where, like, when the sun is above the horizon, it's a risk. 
<laughs> like, recently it was advertised an all-nude open mic at Red oh. Beach in Vancouver. Oh, my God. they set the time at 4.20, tee-hee-hee. But, like, if I stand for an hour in direct sunlight with parts of me out that have nary seen the light of day since my birth... I will die. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You'll have skin cancer by the end of the hour. By the third dick joke, I'm gonna be dead. <laughs> Nudity is for podcasting, not for outdoor stand-up. <laughs> Glad we cleared that up. So the best place for freshwater diving in this part of Florida was a nearby dive park called Vortex Spring, just outside of Ponce de Leon, Florida. It's the largest recreational diving facility in the state, and Ben became a frequent diver there. So one of the main attractions of Vortex Springs is a large underwater cave system, part of which is only made accessible to experienced cave divers. So the cave system that we're talking about is located inside a larger cavern. The entrance of the cavern is 58 feet, or 18 meters, if you're using a sensible system of measurement, below the surface. And experienced divers are allowed to dive down to a depth of 115 feet, or 35 meters, if they have an open water diving certification, which is one of the most common forms of scuba diving certificate. They need to have the open water certification, experience, and sign a liability waiver. At a depth of 115 feet, however, there is a locked gate, accompanied by a sign with a picture of the Grim Reaper, captioned, There is nothing in this cave worth dying for. Ooh. Ominous. <laughs> That's what you want to see 35 meters below the surface of the water. That's exactly <laughs> what you want to look at. Go in here, y'all gonna die. You gonna die. It's gonna happen. You, you gonna die. I had to watch a lot of cave diving videos to research this podcast, and I did- Holy fuck. How is that a recreational activity and not a punishment? I get anxious just watching people swim in caves. It upsets me. <laughs> I can't. Holy fuck. Um, so beyond that sign, there are at least 1,600 feet of caves going down to a known depth of 310 feet. I say known because the caves are so enormous that the full extent of them has not been mapped. They're also- parts of them are not really accessible if you want to live. Um, we're gonna yeah. talk a lot about these caves. Uh, so the caves are a huge draw for experienced cave divers. People will travel from all over the world to explore the caves, but they are quite difficult and dangerous. This is a very popular dive park, but that doesn't mean that this is, like, the Disneyland of caves. This is, this is a tough cave system, even for people who know what they're doing. Parts of the cave are so narrow that passing through them requires divers to take off their tanks and go through sideways, carrying the tanks at their side. And I'm just gonna say... No. 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 I Fuck honestly no. didn't really understand the extent to which I am claustrophobic until I started researching this podcast. Uh, like, you've been talking about this for less than two minutes, and I am sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's I... gonna have a full-fledged asthma attack. I feel cold. <laughs> <laughs> I smell toast. I feel cold. This is not okay. <laughs> You just, the thought of being somewhere that you are constricted between two large pieces of rock in a dark cave 310 feet beneath the surface of the water, not how I want to spend a Saturday. Just gonna say it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the devil thinks about when he touches himself. So, 
Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I have a hard Fuck time no. on crowded subway cars sometimes. So this, no. Yeah. My my <laughs> chunky ass is not going in any fucking cave. Um, absolutely fucking not. No, no, absolutely not. I holy shit. But yeah, so the gate over the entrance to these caves was installed after the state of Florida threatened to permanently ban all diving in the cave system in response to the deaths of 13 divers in those caves during the 1990s. Vortex Springs were told that they either had to improve safety in the caves or permanently lose access to them, which seems fair. Yeah. To be honest. To their credit, in response, Vortex Springs created a system of cave diving safety measures, including a special cave diving certification that they pioneered that have since become the gold standard for particularly hazardous underwater caves. So in order to access the cave system at Vortex Springs, divers had to show the dive shop proof of a cave diving certification. This certification required at least 125 dives with a licensed instructor or certified diving partner. Typically, a staff member would then dive down to the gate alongside the divers with the key, unlock the gate for them, and usually remain with the divers or at the caves for the duration of the dive. Solo diving in this cave was highly discouraged for obvious reasons. Ben became a regular at the dive park fairly quickly into his sabbatical, and staff and other regular divers became used to his presence there. Something that has been mistakenly reported in some coverage was that Ben was a cave diver. Ben was not a cave diver. He did not have a cave diving certification. What he had was a strong interest in cave diving anyway. Um, mm. That's yes. like the worst combination of traits. Not being a cave diver, but being super into cave diving. Because, like, if you're lacking one or the other, there's no real problem. <laughs> I'm not a registered, like, falconer, but, like... I'm not interested in letting a bird of prey anywhere near my eyeballs. We're all gonna be fine. I'm not licensed <laughs> to fuck bears, but luckily, I don't want to fuck a bear. <laughs> so, that just kind of worked itself out. Grizzly <laughs> romance has never been one of my dreams. But I mean, if there's an activity that you're gonna do without a license, don't make it cave diving. No. Build a shed without a permit, you crazy diamond, but don't go cave diving. <laughs> Sell lemonade. Do it. Oh, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't get a business permit. <laughs> don't try this at home. Ben apparently looked for a certified dive partner or instructor who is willing to explore the cave with him, but he was unable to find anyone at Vortex Springs who was willing to do it, which prevented him from getting his cave diving license. According to Chuck Cronin, an employee of Vortex Springs who knew McDaniel, Ben was an experienced and capable diver, but one who was vastly overconfident in his abilities. Other patrons of Vortex Springs apparently shared this opinion. In fact, I spent a lot of time researching this podcast on various scuba diving forums, and the discussion of Ben McDaniels on diving forums is quite scathing. When you are an instructor, when you are a tour guide, the last thing you want is someone who is overconfident, because they do not listen. <laughs> Yeah, underconfidence you can work around. Overconfidence is difficult. The worst thing with an underconfident person is that you can't get them off the boat. <laughs> <laughs> or they might try to climb you while you're in the ocean. Either or. <laughs> Meanwhile, the overconfident dude is in a riptide 400 feet beneath the surface of the water. He's, he's gone. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's just a man who is sticking a sea urchin down his wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> 
He is just pelvic thrusting at the otters, and he will not listen to reason. Also, uh, I haven't found this in any mainstream reports, but on diving forums, apparently there's a consensus that the equipment Ben tended to dive with was a disaster. It was cobbled together from a bunch of different kits. None of it made any sense together. It was very much a MacGyver scuba kit and he wasn't willing to invest in like the proper equipment that he needed because he felt that the equipment he'd cobbled together himself was just as good so the fact that he wasn't willing to take instruction or listen to other people's feedback meant that basically nobody was willing to to partner dive with him honestly that's a trait that it would be a deal breaker for me in a group partner i was just gonna say the exact same thing i wouldn't make a powerpoint with you if <laughs> 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 if you're not willing to take direction, listen to reason, or respect other people's expertise, I don't want to make a papier-mâché diorama with you. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind trust you with my basic safety. <laughs> yeah, no, hard no. Um, so I, I can kind of, this again, this is not something that's been reported in mainstream media. This is something that comes from scuba diving forums, from people who claim that they knew him or claim that their friends knew him, so who knows. But employees of Vortex Springs have gone on record saying that he was vastly overconfident. After his disappearance and after people kind of started coming forward with the idea that he was arrogant, the McDaniels defended what many were calling a pattern of reckless behavior by their son. They said that he was simply fearless and unafraid to follow his dreams. Which, yeah, that means the exact same thing, but in more positive language. Yeah, I mean, following your dreams is great, but not if you follow them right out onto an eight-lane highway, you know, like... Yeah, or into a deep, treacherous cave, as the case may be. Yeah, and other divers may have had a point. Apparently, since Ben was not eligible to get the key to the gate, he was in the habit of forcing the gate and exploring the caves anyway. His dive log suggests that he'd actually explored them pretty extensively before he disappeared. Gossip on cave diving forums also suggests that Ben was in the habit of sneaking into the caves at night so that he would not have to log his dives. Although diving at the park is not supposed to take place after hours, the park is accessible 24-7 because there are campsites and rental cabins on site for tourists nearby. It's not impossible to imagine that he got to the spring itself. Oh, so making sure that you're uh, in the cave the deep, dark, treacherous cave that is largely unexplored at the time where there is least likely to be other people to intercede when th if things go wrong. Good. Good. I don't think he was taking his brother's death super okay. I don't think he was taking a lot of things super okay. In early August of 2010, shortly before his disappearance, Ben went home to his parents' house in Tennessee for a visit. According to his parents, he was in high spirits and he talked about wanting to take the next steps to pull his life back together. He was reportedly thinking about getting his scuba diving instructor certification and his cave diving certification in the interest of starting a diving-related business. Like exactly what Jessica's mom does, adventure tourism. It's a big thing. People sometimes will meet my mother and then they'll be like, she's gone skydiving, she's jumped off of buildings, she goes rappelling all the time. And they're like, wow, your mom is so cool. What happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, it just sounds like your mother has perfected every means of getting away from you. <laughs> she's like, even at 35,000 feet. No, fuck this kid. <laughs> I'm out. That little fucker won't follow me up here. <laughs> You're just going to be on a plane with your mom someday. You're going to say something to her. She's just going to punch the window and bail. 
<laughs> You'll be at some observation point on some tall building. She's just gonna rappel off of it to get away from you. Like, haha. And then she's just gonna, like, pull off her dress to reveal, like, a batwing suit and then just, like, glide away. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I could see it. My mom actually uh, has her sea kayaking license, which means I am just a straight disappointment to the family. I have the aquatic abilities and grace of a fucking manatee, so... Hey, manatees can swim very well. Never mind, I'm a floating dinghy. Wonderful. <laughs> One of those inflatable rubber rafts you give to a child. That's me. That's my swimming ability. I can I can float. It's got a duck duck head on the front. That's the kind of boat I want in the water. None of this sea kayaking nonsense. My my number one skill in the water, I am highly buoyant. <laughs> but while at home visiting his family, Ben also spoke about his plans for a diving business with his girlfriend Emily who said that he seemed optimistic about the future, possibly for the first time in a long time. On August 14th or 15th, Ben returned to the beach house in Florida. He left behind a note for his parents, thanking them for supporting him during his sabbatical, and promising that he would look after them when they were older. Obviously, this is not a promise that Ben got to keep. On August 18th, a hot and sunny summer day, Ben returned to Vortex Springs for a day of diving. He made one midday dive, during which he appeared to be scouting out the area around the cave entrance. Divers who saw him later reported that he appeared to be, quote, planning something. Although it's possible that there's a bit of hindsight going on there. Like, I don't even know what someone who is planning something looks like. <laughs> Especially underwater with a scuba mask on. How shifty can you be? Unless you got, like, some rulers, you know, you're, you're measuring something out. You've got some trigonometry gear. Like, I don't know if I, got, if I can tell if somebody's planning something. He's just down there with a protractor taking angles. Good. <laughs> Good stuff. Just brings out a sextant, gets busy. <laughs> I don't think those work underwater. You need to see the horizon. You can't be underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a horizon of sorts. This is the reason we don't let Jessica voyage. Um... <laughs> So after surfacing from his dive, McDaniel was captured on security cameras filling his dive tanks at the dive shop. After that, he spent the rest of the afternoon at the edge of the spring, writing notes in his dive log and testing all of his equipment. It was reportedly around 32 degrees Celsius at the time, and he may have been waiting for the day to cool off before he made another dive. As the sun started to set that evening, Ben began making preparations for another dive. He called his mother, which was the last contact he would have with any member of his family, and at 7.30pm, he entered the water for his final dive. Speaking of somebody who has previously uh, snorkeled while having sunstroke, I approve. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know what it's like feeling the movement of the ocean when you are already nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> And you can't vomit because, you know, you're just basically going to be swimming in it, so. <laughs> I was going to say, if you die because you aspirate vomit after throwing up into a dive mask, that's 100%. If you just puke straight into a snorkel. <laughs> and drown in it, I'm 100% putting that on your tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to put that in my obituary so I can confuse people hundreds of years into the future. Like, have you ever seen that obituary about that kid who died while being swung around by his ankles by a clown? <laughs> yes. It's nightmares for life. Yes. <laughs> More upsetting than all of Stephen King's it. <laughs> <laughs> Except the child orgy. 
That one's exclusively for the for the book readers. Yeah, that's you can't film that without going to jail. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you vomit and die in a public pool, I will build a monument to it. I will spend my life savings having you lovingly rendered in marble, vomiting into a snorkel. <laughs> Which is like a mean limerick on the base. Yes. <laughs> um, so Vortex Spring employees Eduardo Tarin and Chuck Cronin, the one who went on record saying that Ben was overconfident, took a dive together after the dive shop closed for the day, which was something that they were in the habit of doing. On their way back up, they encountered Ben going down, with a dive helmet on and his lights on. Based on the helmet and lights, they reasoned that Ben was planning to take an unauthorized trip into the caves. They knew that he was going to force the gate anyway, so Taryn decided to just save everyone some effort and just unlock the gate for him. It's basically the fine you win of, of <laughs> scuba diving. The I give up. <laughs> Yep. It's like every mother who's just like, yeah, I'm not even gonna lock the liquor cabinet. Fuck all of you. You're seven. It's time for Hennessy. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Taryn said he accompanied Ben down to the locked gate and opened it. He stayed long enough to watch Ben vanish into the caves and then resurface to meet his buddy Chuck Cronin. This is the last confirmed sighting of Ben McDaniel. Chuck and Eduardo were normally in the habit of hanging around the vortex at the water's edge when Ben was taking an evening solo dive. They would stay at least until they saw bubbles breaking the surface of the water, which is a sign that a diver is ascending. This wasn't really part of their job duties. It was after hours. This was just something that they did as a courtesy to Ben. Um, On August 17th, however, they broke with tradition and they left the park as soon as Terran resurfaced from letting Ben into the caves. They said that they went back to Terran's place for coffee. When staff returned to Vortex Springs the next morning, Ben's truck was still there. It was reportedly visible from the dive shop, and after closing time, it was the only truck still left in the parking lot overnight. It was not noticed right away, however. Vortex Springs is a busy tourist spot. In addition to scuba diving, it offers paddleboarding, swimming, tubing, camping, picnics, and all kinds of other recreational activities. It actually sounds like a great time. If you look up the Vortex Springs website, that shit looks fun. If you don't scuba dive at all, it still looks like an awesome time. They'll just give you a paddleboard and have tell you to go nuts. It sounds great. But it gets very, very busy in the summertime, and staff said that they were too swamped with other guests to notice that Ben's truck was abandoned. For me, like, these two guys hanging around after hours, like, it's easy to blame them knowing what happens to him, or in this case, not knowing what happens to him. This is like if some asshole, just like some elderly lady, just insists on continuing shopping at Walmart. <laughs> After the store is closed, at some point you just you just lock the door, leave her to her own devices. It's just like, you know, she breaks in every week. The police have told us to stop calling. Fuck it, Deirdre. Go wild. We're going home. (laughs) Legends say she's there to this day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of sympathetic in the whole just like, fuck it, we're going home kind of thing. Yeah, I've worked retail. I don't get paid enough to deal with this shit because no amount of money would be worth this shit. (laughs) No, and I've, I've, I mean, I've worked retail, which is not like working at a dive shop, but I've had customers that I would have personally stood on underwater till bubbles stopped forming. So, you know. You know. It does seem alarming, though, that in a dive park with a history of deaths in the caves, 
that somebody's truck can just be alone in the parking lot for two nights without anybody noticing. On August 20th, two days after Ben McDaniel's final dive, Eduardo Taren, who was the one who unlocked the gate for Ben, eventually noticed the truck. He started asking around to see if anybody had seen Ben lately. When he determined that Ben had not been seen since his late-night cave dive on the 18th, he phoned the sheriff's department to report Ben missing. Which is a fun way of saying, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Yeah. So police came out right away to investigate the disappearance and tape off the area with crime scene tape, which, ooh. They quickly determined that there was no sign of a struggle in or around the truck. The truck contained Ben's wallet, which had $681 in cash inside, as well as his cell phone, which had not been used since Ben called his mother on the 18th. The truck also contained Ben's diving logs, but none of his diving gear. Police who visited Ben's home that day also discovered his dog, who was extremely hungry and did not appear to have been fed in several days. I mean, how you distinguish a dog that hasn't been fed in 48 hours from a dog that hasn't been fed in five minutes is beyond me. Because <laughs> my monster dog just lives in a perpetual state of famine. But that's what the news report said. They said that the dog was very hungry, so... In any case, it doesn't really take a master detective to piece together the mystery of a man who was last seen scuba diving at night solo in a dangerous cave when all his dive gear is missing. That's just not... Like, there's one pretty obvious conclusion. You can't 100% verify it, but it's fairly leading. But, uh, I personally have never starved a dog, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> I think the fact that I don't know what a starved dog looks like reflects well upon me. <laughs> I think if I'm ever, like, two hours late with my dog's dinner, she will begin eating the furniture like a beaver. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever just have, like, a, a, a pull an all-nighter and you pass out for 18 hours, she's gonna try to eat you. Chihuahuas, people assume that, like, chihuahuas take, like, two tablespoons of food because they're tiny purse dogs. She eats and shits like a Labrador. They have... <laughs> She's like percent stomach. They tremble all day. That's you burn a lot of calories just violently shivering like a hummingbird. all day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like this dog just takes like pit bull dumps for <laughs> Just that's that's she's looking at me. Yeah, I'm talking about your poo in front of an audience. <laughs> I'm shaming you. They came to a pretty solid conclusion about where Ben was. Pretty early in the investigation, um, if this was a cut-and-dry case of a diver who drowned, this would not n be nearly interesting enough for a true crime podcast, but that's that's the working theory. <laughs> Last <laughs> scene, sticking his dick in a bear trap. <laughs> Fate unknown. <laughs> Bears seem fuller than usual, I don't know. <laughs> Bears taking awfully large shits. <laughs> <laughs> no. But police assume from the get-go that I wrote Brian for some goddamn reason. Ben. I guess all white dude names are just the same in my head. Might as well be Steve. S Steve McWhite guy had drowned while diving. Um, no, they assume that Ben McDaniel had drowned while diving and that this was now a body recovery mission. And this is really interesting. Cadaver dogs were brought in to assist with the search and apparently indicated the presence of a corpse after smelling the surface of the water. And I actually looked into this because I had never heard of cadaver dogs being used to assist in an underwater search before, but apparently they are actually capable of detecting a body submerged in water. They can't actually smell through the water, that's not how 
your sense of scent works at all. Psychic dogs. No, dogs are not psychic. Um, psychic dogs! Dogs do have a scent organ that humans don't have that gives them much better scent acuity. Although, I mean, I'm not confident my chihuahuas could find her own food if it was behind <laughs> her. But uh, normal dogs, uh, Labradors are actually used for cadaver dog searches most often. Bloodhounds have a better sense of scent, but they are too stubborn to make good cadaver dogs. I learned a lot about cadaver dogs. Um, <laughs> a body that is decomposing under the water will release telltale gases that escape from the body and rise to the surface, and the dog can smell those on the surface of the water. And it doesn't take a lot of those for the dog to be able to detect it. They're very good at this. The full capability of a cadaver dog to detect a body in water is not yet known, because police have only recently started using them for this purpose. And it's only the United States that is using them for underwater searches. The UK and Europe still don't do this. One article in Forensic Mag said that the dogs are known to be accurate within one meter of surface area and down to 15 meters of depth, but the full abilities of the dogs are not known. To me, though, this kind of raises the obvious issue that if Ben's body was down in the caves, it would have been much, much farther down than 15 meters, but... Who knows? Like I said, we don't really know the capabilities of cadaver dogs to do this kind of work. I'm, I'm not an expert on the water systems in this area. The dogs indicated a corpse. That's all we know. Good boy. Where's a corpse? Where's a dead body? Where's a dead body? <laughs> yeah, and apparently the dogs that they use for cadaver searches are separate dogs from the ones that they use if they think you're still alive. Those are, those are two very distinct skill sets. So a dog is either a search and rescue or a cadaver dog. They don't mm. do both. You, you would probably be looking at a very different scent pattern, depending on whether or not you're looking for a live specific person or a dead body. Yes, dogs, cadaver dogs are specifically detecting gases produced by decomposition. That's what they're detecting. When I was a kid, my mom read a lot of books on uh, search and rescue dogs and uh, she trained uh, she trained our poodles to uh, to hunt us down in the woods. Yeah, your mom doesn't like you. That's all that I'm learning. <laughs> Just in case I escape, she 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 taught summer, winter, and Mister my scent. That's why your mom never let you have long hair as a child. She just had a box of your hair for the dogs to smell. <laughs> just th throws a pair of my Kermit boxers at them and says, "Go, rend limb from limb." Mm. Kill! Kill! <laughs> then she jumps out of a plane to avoid justice. It's perfect. Ah, uh, memories. You know, coming home after school and then going out to the woods and stepping out of the truck. And mom giving you a ten minute head start before she releases the hounds. My dog can hear that I'm talking about dogs, but I'm not paying any attention to her. So she's just flinging herself down increasingly dramatically and sighing. <laughs> she's, she's behind me she's just like <sighs> just <laughs> flopping from one end of my bed to the next you're not a cadaver dog and you never will be you're pathetic give up on your dreams bianca they were never meant to be <laughs> you're a purse dog and you live in new york city so having an astute sense of smell is not an asset i take you on the subway it's kinder to smell nothing but yeah, so the circumstances of the disappearance made actually searching for Ben kind of a nightmare. 
because the police themselves couldn't do the search. Police don't have scuba dive teams on the payroll. It'd be a little tricky to have every corporal have their, their open water license. A little bit. Your riot shields won't fit in the cave. So, <laughs> in order to search for Ben, they had to call on civilian cave divers to do it for them. <laughs> Pull a badge on a on a puffer fish stuff in the name of the law. <laughs> okay, so this is now how Jessica dies, trying to a citizens arrest a puffer fish. That's <laughs> That's how Jessica drowns. <laughs> you puffing up, you're just like, no, that's illegal inflation. Get that's out of a threat. <laughs> you're resisting arrest, puffer fish? Wonderful. That's that's it's going right on your tombstone. But police put out a call to local cave divers on the day Ben's disappearance was reported, asking them to come to Vortex Springs to search the cave and assist in what was assumed to be a recovery operation. The diver that they really wanted was a man named Ed Sorensen. Sorensen is a famous technical cave diver who has made a number of highly publicized rescues and recoveries of trapped cave divers. Apparently, he is normally the go-to first responder for all cave diving incidents in the area, but at the time of McDaniel's disappearance, he was on a yacht in the Bahamas. How dare. So, the divers who responded to the police call organized themselves into three teams and conducted a thorough search operation, combing the cave for days over the course of multiple dives. What they didn't find is almost as interesting as what they did. So, the divers were able to locate Ben's dive tanks. The two tanks were located near the mouth of the cave, which is fairly unusual for a cave dive. Apparently, cave divers typically bring the tanks into the cave with them, and they leave them at strategic points along their journey so that they can follow the tanks back out if they get lost. The tanks actually aren't used to provide the diver with oxygen during the dive. These are tanks that the divers use to aid with decompression after they finish the dive. I mean, you need tanks for both. You're not just holding your breath while you're in the cave. But the tanks that you can ditch while you're diving, that you can just yeet into the cave, are not ones that you actually need to get through the caves. These are your decompression tanks. So for those of you who don't scuba dive, because you were raised in a landlocked prairie province and you did karate instead, divers who resurface too quickly after a dive can become extremely sick with decompression sickness, which is ah, commonly... This! It's commonly referred to as the bends. And I'm not really going to pretend that I have a complex understanding of this because I don't, because none of my hobbies are this fatal. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got hypothermia skiing once. Other than that, it's been, it's been pretty smooth sailing. Cross-country skiing. So if you hit a tree cross-country skiing, you just suck at it. It's, you're not going to die. You're hitting it at a brisk walking pace and you had plenty of time to stop. I did downhill. <laughs> No, that that you can die. That one you think, can straight up die. I think my mother was trying to kill me. You've convinced me. <laughs> yeah, all of your... Did you also bull ride? Like, what other... <laughs> uh, I did once get hit in the head by a rock at a cattle auction. Did your mom just play the okay kids jump out of the minivan on the highway game? It's a fun game called Hitchhike. See if you get home. <laughs> but uh, the Benz, I think, has a lot to do with the dissolution of gases in the blood. Yes! Because you know how, like, the atmosphere works. Things that are higher up expand, and things that are lower down compress. Jessica's and... nerdiness prevails again. Yeah, and that also happens when the air's inside you. Yeah, it has to do with pressure. 
So when your body is exposed to high pressure, so you have nitrogen dissolved in your blood right now. Sorry if that horrifies you. I, you just have to learn to live with the nitrogen. The air that we breathe is predominantly nitrogen. But how much nitrogen is dissolved in your blood depends on the air pressure. So, or I mean, the pressure that you're under. There's no air pressure underwater. Dumb, Janelle. Just pressure. <laughs> pressure, pressure. pressure. When. When you are exposed to high-pressure environments, like when you're deep underwater, the pressure forces more nitrogen to dissolve into your bloodstream. And then when you surface too quickly, if you alleviate that pressure too quickly, the nitrogen will come out of your blood way too fast and form actual bubbles in your blood and tissue, turning you into a human can of seltzer. Psst. It's not good. Bubbles in the blood is not good. No. Um, so the bends can cause everything from joint pain and dizziness to permanent paralysis, heart attacks, and death. It's also why uh, after scuba diving or after scuba diving for long periods of time, a lot of that nitrogen stays within your blood cumulatively. So yes. you're only supposed to spend so much time underwater at once and only so much time underwater over a period of time. And afterwards, you need to wait a certain period, depending on how long you've been underwater, before you go on something like a plane, or you go to somewhere with a high altitude, such as the top of a mountain. Yes, look at Jessica preempting my notes with her nerdiness. <laughs> I told you! <laughs> Even if you don't have the bends when you initially get out of the water and you feel fine, they can take hours to develop, and if you go from a dive to the shore to a plane in the same day, you can develop very serious complications on the plane because it's too much change in pressure. You still have elevated levels of dissolved nitrogen and you need time to get your nitrogen levels back to normal. So in order to prevent the bends and to minimize the effects, divers can either ascend at a very slow speed or they can ascend in stages with mandated stops at certain depths. So you go up to a certain depth and then you, you've got to chill there for a bit while your blood just denitrogenizes. Where it, well, it just fizzles like a Pepsi. Basically. Um, dives also, as Jessica said, need to be staggered in order to account for excess nitrogen still dissolved in the bloodstream. So even if you've ascended successfully, if you want to dive again in the next period of time, you need to take into account how long you've already been in the water and how deep you were. So dives, if you're diving multiple times throughout the day, your dives are going to get shorter and shorter and you're going to go less and less deep. Which is not what she said. A lot of what you learn during scuba diving lessons, well, in the bits while you are not involuntarily asleep, is how to do the complex math of telling whether or not, given the depth you were at and given the time you were under, whether or not you're good to dive again. Yeah, you, this it involves a lot of math and note-taking. You really do. This is why you have to record dives in your dive log. You have because to track this shit. You have to track it, and one of the symptoms of having excess nitrogen in your blood is confusion. Um, of, having, of having the bends, of coming up too quickly. So you need to write this shit down. You really can't play with this. In order to reduce the time required to decompress and to reduce the risks of decompression sickness, divers will fill their tanks. The tanks that you bring down with you on a dive, especially on a deep dive or a cave dive, are not filled with plain air. You can't just fill this shit at a bike pump. Divers fill their tanks with breathing gas, which is a special gas mixture that is high in oxygen and has lower levels of inert gases like nitrogen. So it all goes into your calculations. Breathing gas also prevents something called nitrogen narcosis, 
you are more sensitive to the high amount of nitrogen in that you're breathing in when you are at deep pressures. And if you are breathing regular air, the high amount of nitrogen can cause a condition called nitrogen narcosis for you're essentially high on nitrogen and Woo! it can cause you to become confused and it can give you vertigo. And those are not things that you want to have when you are in a cave 300 feet down. No, those you not... do not want to be high no. on air when you are in that situation. Hard no. And the reason that we just went on a long, boring spiel about nitrogen is because Ben's dive tanks were not found to contain breathing gas. They contained regular old air, like he Ooh. was filling a bike tire. Which apparently, Shit. no, that's not a mistake any cave diver would make. Apparently anybody with even a passing knowledge of scuba diving knows that you don't fill your tanks with regular air. So, first they were like, this is weird. Ben definitely should have known better. He was not a trained cave diver, but from what I can glean from scuba diving forums and scuba diving uh, websites, this is very basic information. They don't hide this very deep in the how to scuba dive for dummies. No, like this is day one shit. This is day one shit. You're not breathing pure oxygen, nor are you breathing regular air. You're breathing something in between. Anybody with a strong interest in cave diving or scuba diving should know this. He had told his parents that he was doing extensive research on cave diving uh, in preparation for possibly opening a cave diving business, and filling his tanks with plain air seems like a rookie mistake that he would have known not to make. Besides the tanks, though, no trace of Ben was found inside the cave. Not his equipment, his body, or any scrapes on the cave walls indicating he had been there. Not so much as a stray swim fin was located over two days of diving. The cave divers who are panicking and low on oxygen have a tendency to burrow themselves deeper and deeper into small crevices in caves. This is a pattern that is seen over and over again in cave diving deaths, because human instincts are sometimes horrifying. And rescue divers specifically tried to mimic this pattern as they searched every nook and cranny of the cave system. Many of the divers who searched for Ben did so at great personal risk. By August 22nd, every inch of the cave that was considered passable had been searched, except for an unmapped section that is considered inaccessible by humans. Which meant that it was time to bring in the big guns. Do they have a search fish? Just, just, they're just putting cameras on fish, like, fuck it. <laughs> they, they, got a little, they got a little vest. Oh, search fish. GoPro on a goldfish? No. <laughs> no, they did not GoPro a goldfish. What they did was that they sent a text message to Ed Sorensen in the Bahamas, this is the cave diver search and rescue extraordinaire, requesting his immediate assistance, and he arrived in Vortex Springs the next day. Gear on, ready to search. This guy does not mess around. Despite- International cave diving experts cautioned him that it was unsafe to proceed any further into the caves than the dive teams had already gone. Again, cave divers map where they go. You have to take detailed notes about where you, about what you, you're doing when you're cave diving. But apparently, no one tells Ed fucking Sorensen what to do. He made a total of three dives into the caves to look for Ben, using specialty equipment that made it possible for him to go further into the caves than the dive teams had gone, and probably further than any human had ever gone into the caves before or since. He used something called a diver propulsion vehicle. It's basically oh. like the flutterboard that they give you in swim classes for six-year-olds. Um, but it's got I mean, a little motor in it. It does. It's got a motor and it propels you into the water. Usually they are ones that you 
they drag you behind them, kind of. You hang on. There's there's a bunch of different models, but it's basically a little motorized thing that you hang on to and it can drag you further into the cave. These vehicles allow cave drivers to extend their range significantly. They let you get much further into the cave because they let you travel greater distances with less breathing gas and less energy exerted. Yeah, you're not only moving faster, your your body's lo- using less of the oxygen it has. Exactly. You're just along for the ride. Um, they also increase the distance you can cover before the high pressure starts to turn you into goo, which is really important. Sorensen also carried special tiny breathing tanks with him, which let him wriggle into tighter spaces than divers carrying ordinary tanks. All told, Sorensen claims to have ventured 1,700 meters into the cave, which is 200 meters past the furthest point ever noted in McDaniel's dive logs. I'm not going to dispute him on that one. I believe him. He said that the deepest parts of the cave were completely free from any signs of human passage, and that he was very clearly the only person ever to have entered certain parts of the cave. Sorensen was physically smaller than Ben and vastly more experienced with cave diving, and he had specialty equipment. So it's incredibly like unlikely that Ben would have been able to get further into the cave than a world-famous cave diver using specialized equipment. Sorensen was quoted by the Memphis Commercial Appeal saying, I know what I'm doing and I barely made it through. The last place I searched was pristine without a mark that a diver had been there. It would be impossible to go through that restriction without making a mark on the floor or ceiling. He's not in there. Um, And in cave diving, a restriction is an area of a cave that is very small and difficult to pass through. This Mm. This is normally like take off the tanks and go through sideways. That's what a restriction is. And that's often where you get stuck. In, in fatal cave diving accidents. It's at a restriction. You you get in and you can't get out again. There are not a lot of heartwarming moments in true crime podcasts, and this is obviously a very sad situation regardless of what the outcome is, but it's kind of incredible that there are people out there willing to go to such extremes and take such immense personal risks for a complete stranger. So, rock on Ed Sorensen. Much respect. That's a kind of common professional ethos among people who do these kinds of dangerous activities. Yeah. There's a certain understanding that sometimes when you're in these kinds of dangerous situations, the only person with the capacity to come get you is somebody else with equal training, with the same who, who exists within the same sort of sphere. I mean, you are somewhere that emergency services cannot get to you. They can't reach you. So if, if someone's coming to rescue you, it's going to be one of your peers. Ben McDaniel's parents came down to Florida pretty much immediately after he was reported missing, and they became heavily involved in the search for their son, both personally and financially. They offered to repay the cost of the Fort Lauderdale remotely operated underwater vehicle if it was lost or destroyed in the search for Ben. So this is an unmanned underwater vehicle with a camera on it that can be used for underwater searches like this. These things are not cheap. Apparently, they were looking at a $54,000 price tag if this thing got ruined. Unfortunately, though, this vehicle was not able to get any further into the cave than the human divers had. When Sorensen failed to find any trace of their son, they hired Steve Keen, a diver with an intricate knowledge of Vortex Springs Caves. He had been the one who made initial maps of the cave system in 2003, and he made a total of seven dives looking for Ben before discontinuing the search saying that if Ben was in the caves, he had no idea where he could be. All told, in the months following Ben's disappearance, 
16 divers spent a total of 36 days in the caves, looking for signs of Ben. Eventually, though, as the search for Ben wore on with no end in sight, the McDaniels ran afoul of the diving community. Basically, the McDaniels threw a benefit on Ben's 31st birthday, or what would have been his 31st birthday, to raise money to continue the search, and shortly afterwards they announced that they firmly believed Ben's body was in some unexplored crevice of the cave, and they were offering $10,000 to anyone, quote, brave enough to find it. Oh, this angered fuck off. Yeah, you see the problem. You see the problem. So this angered the diving community for two reasons. For starters, many, many excellent divers risked their lives going to extreme lengths to find Ben, and they resented the implication that they might have found him if they'd simply been braver. This has to be extra tone-deaf and extra infuriating when it's coming from people who do not cave dive, have never actually been inside the caves, and don't have any personal understanding of the risks involved. When you've, you know, risked your life looking for this person, and somebody tells you that you just weren't brave enough, it's it's gotta sting a little bit, because you just risk death, and they don't really understand that. I have researched cave diving many, many hours spent reading about cave diving and scuba diving for this podcast, but I'm not going to pretend that I have, like, a genuine understanding of how scary this is or how quickly this can go badly. I just, I trust cave divers when they say that it it is. Especially when there appears to be a professional consensus. I am fully willing to defer to the expertise of Ed the Human Fish Sorensen. <laughs> Ed fucking Sorensen. He is as close as man has ever come to a moray eel, and I'm willing to respect that. He is. Um, this this guy is basically a human moray eel. He just, he can slither on in. You know, if he doesn't have a pharyngeal jaw, jaw he should consider it. <laughs> The community was also deeply concerned that throwing money at the problem might encourage some inexperienced divers to take foolhardy risks in the cave. Yeah. It's basically a sticking your dick in a bear trap bounty. (laughs) We're really into fucking bears this podcast. Hey, fucking bear traps. You're the bear fucker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna have business cards made. Janelle Como, comedian, podcaster, writer, bear fucker. (laughs) <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. I only get to do one of those activities once. You're a braver man than I, Janelle. Braver man than I. Fucking a bear trap you can do until the sepsis takes you. So <laughs> 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 a weird conversation. But the McDaniels were unmoved by the argument that maybe putting a financial incentive on people to do something incredibly risky might not be the best idea, and they continued to increase the amount of award money on offer until the pot swelled to $30,000. Oh, see, like... It's a lot of money. If all of the experts have already done it, the only people who will accept that offer are people who shouldn't. Yeah, and in March of 2012, that is exactly what happened. The diving community's worst fears were recognized when a young diver named Larry Higginbotham went missing after a cave dive. His body was discovered in the caves the next day. He had gotten himself stuck in a restriction, or a narrow point, and had been unable to get himself out, which again is one of the big dangers of cave diving. Ed Sorensen was actually the one to retrieve the body, and he had to navigate it through several very tight restrictions to get it out. Larry had never explicitly told anybody that he was searching for Ben McDaniel or the reward money, 
but he had gone down into the caves with a shovel and started working his way through increasingly tight and risky restrictions, and so it was sort of easy enough to put two and two together, especially because from the sounds of it, Larry was not an experienced cave diver. Larry's death caused a significant amount of backlash among the diving community, obviously, and in this backlash following Larry's death, the McDaniels were told to cancel the reward money. Ed Sorensen himself pointed out that they were now endangering the lives of other divers, not only inexperienced divers who were risking their lives trying to go after this reward money, but they were putting the lives of expert divers like himself at risk because they had to make dives retrieving the bodies of failed divers from narrow crevices. Can you imagine? It's it's a panicky enough situation altogether, but then you're just sort of like piggybacking a corpse. So in the wake of Larry's death and all the ensuing criticism, the, the McDaniels did rescind the award. They began to consider the possibility that Ben hadn't actually died in the cave, but had instead been murdered. They set up a tip line for information, but did not receive any tips. The McDaniels, incidentally, weren't the only ones considering the possibility that Ben had not died in the cave, or at least that his body was no longer there. The police were also beginning to seriously consider alternate explanations for the disappearance. But one of the, some of the reasons that they didn't think that Ben died in the caves was that in the months after D Ben's disappearance, and this is also cool forensic science, the water at Vortex Springs was tested more than 30 times for the presence of bacteria associated with human decomposition. If Ben's body was down in the cave, they would have expected to see an increase in the levels of this bacteria in the months after his disappearance. No increase was ever detected. Members of the diving community and Vortex Springs staff began to float the idea that Ben had actually staged this diving accident in order to fake his own death and start a new life somewhere else. He had made no secret of his many personal problems, and it made sense to them that he just wanted to run away from it all. Taran, the employee who had let, let Ben into the caves the night he disappeared, took and passed a lie detector test that grilled him on his version of the events of August 18th, 2010. Lie detector tests are about as accurate as mood rings um, and horoscopes. <laughs> this was presented like uncritically in a number of articles as like ironclad proof that there's no shady shit here. But <sighs> you can beat a lie detector te test with Xanax. <laughs> you can beat a lie detector test by wiggling your toes. <laughs> Anything that elevates your heart rate. You literally can. They like try to look at your feet while you're doing a lie detector test because pressing your toes really, really hard into the bottom of your shoe is enough of a distraction that you won't have an emotional reaction to the things you're saying enough to trigger the lie detector. It will be inconclusive. It detects emotional reaction or no emotional reaction. It, it's looking at physiological signs like your galvanic skin response, which is something that goes up. Your skin becomes more conductive as you get stressed out because you're sweating more and your sweat carries electricity. Zit. They're testing heart rate, breathing, all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that if they're not really getting a clear reading, it's very easy to make a lie detector inconclusive. And an inconclusive test doesn't mean shit. It could mean that you're just very emotional about the topic. It could mean that you are on Xanax. It could mean a number of things. It's very easy to fake a lie detector test. Um, maybe you're lying. Maybe you just got hit by a stun gun. You don't or maybe know. You're, you're really freaked out that you think someone's going to accuse you of murder, and that's very yeah. emotional for you. Yeah, if you're just anxious because somebody's asking you if you killed somebody, that would also read as you lying. 
Yeah, you can find more reliable tools for detecting lies in cereal boxes, but whatever, he was willing to take the test, I guess. That's that's all we can really glean from this. But one of the things that is kind of fostering this idea that this may have been a murder, and further complicating this case, Ben's disappearance was not the only shady thing that went down at Vortex Springs that year. At the time of Ben's disappearance, the owner of Vortex Springs, a man named Lowell Kelly, was facing serious criminal charges. It turns out that he had driven an employee out into the woods and beat the holy bejesus out of him with a baseball bat because he claimed the guy the owed him thirty k. Yeah, I don't know. This this goes like hard sideways. This is <laughs> yeah. You're a this... business owner, get a lawyer. Also, this was this guy was like a temporary dive shop employee. This was like a seasonal employee. How does a seasonal employee end up $30,000 in debt to their boss? Yeah. Something about this story absolutely does not add up. But yeah, apparently Lowell Kelly Lowell Kelly allegedly uh, was he convicted? Yes, he was convicted. Never mind. He officially took the guy out into the woods. <laughs> According to with a, a baseball judge bat. possibly a jury, he absolutely did. <laughs> Yeah, never mind. He actually was convicted of this. He was convicted of beating the shit out of a dude with a baseball bat in the woods, which is illegal. That's illegal. That's you can't super do that. illegal. Like, there's a lot of yeah. legal things you can do <laughs> in the woods with a seasonal employee. Beating the shit out of him with a baseball bat is not one of them. It's but a hard no. Hard no. <laughs> I can't imagine working for somebody, like, you know, casual, like, over the summer, and them trusting me with 30 grand. I've I've never been able to find details about like what this what this guy actually did. Unless it was like drug money, I don't understand why you need to why you need to take him out to the woods and settle this soprano style. <laughs> I I don't know. But what I do know is that Lau Kelly was sentenced to seven years of probation for his actions, which really kind of seems like a a light sentence. I don't know. I feel like reckless use of a toaster oven would get you more time than that in prison. Maybe it was a first-time offense, but I don't really know how you can go from, like, no criminal record to baseball beating, so I don't know. (laughs) What case do you have to make before a judge before they're like, say you're sorry and be a good boy for seven years and you don't have to go to jail for this? Like, I don't- I don't understand. You tried to bat a home run with a man's kneecaps, but you seem sorry, so- Fawn slap on the ass and set him on his way. Well, he didn't serve out his probation because in December of 2011, Lowell actually fell down a flight of stairs at Vortex Springs during a chili cook-off under mysterious circumstances and sustained a serious head injury. That's not a sentence I expected to type (laughs) going into this research. I had a base understanding of this case. Yeah, I didn't think it would take me to, like, murder at a chili cookout, but here we are. Um, oh. yeah, they've never, they were never able to gather reliable information about how this happened. Mysterious, chili-related death. He fell down a flight of stairs and nobody was able to, like, adequately explain how that happened. Um, but he sustained a very serious head injury. Maybe the entire chili cook-off was just filled with seasonal wor- seasonal workers who just saw him fall down the stairs and just went, Oh no, that's so sad. Uh, we should go get him <laughs> after we finish this chili. <laughs> I don't- I- I truly don't know. But he was taken back to his home, given a shower, and left in the bathtub to rest with a blanket over him. What um, the fuck? Yeah, for a few- I'm not a doctor, but I do have a master's in brain science. Uh, if somebody has a serious head injury, abandoning them in a bathtub with a blanket over them is sh- shitty fucking medical care. 
A, a head injury is a go to the ER instance pretty much always. Speaking as somebody who has a history of minor head injuries, that's like a list of shit you should not do. <laughs> right? It's like, all right, he's got a head injury. Let's see. Uh, hot water. Uh, put him in a bathtub. Leave him alone. Yeah. That's no. None of those are. None of those are what you're supposed to do. Yeah, so don't do this. Two out of ten medical care. A different person than the one who had taken Kelly to his home came to check on him in the morning and found that he really wasn't looking so good, so they called 911. Kelly was in a coma for about a month and then died in hospice without having ever regained consciousness. And this is the thing about brain injuries is that they can turn deadly hours after they actually happen. You don't know what kind of bleeding may be going on in the brain... Oftentimes, a person who's had a concussion can kind of seem fine and then go to bed and never wake up. So it's it's really important where head injuries are concerned that you go to the hospital. The thing that makes this case difficult is that Florida police have refused to release any information about Kelly's death at all, which is remarkable because this is a state that wipes its ass with privacy laws. Like, they don't care. Florida has something called a sunshine law, which means that pretty much everything is public record. This is why Florida Man is up to so many ridiculous things. Yeah, it's not like Ohio doesn't have crazy people. <laughs> it's that Florida just immediately publishes every man who tries to fuck a beehive. Yeah, exactly. So for Florida police to actually completely lock down a case and not release any information is extremely unusual. So nobody has ever been able to draw a hard and fast connection between McDaniel's disappearance and Kelly's death, but people on internet forums have been trying for years. They hint at there being something shady going on at Vortex Springs, some sort of organized crime, something not good. Maybe McDaniel was tangled up in whatever shady shit Lowell was doing. I mean, McDaniel owed $50,000 to the government. Maybe he got involved in something whatever it is that Lal Kelly was doing where people were throwing around 30 grand. It's hard to say, but nobody's ever made a hard and fast connection. It's just that these cases happened in the same park within the course of a year. Proximity of nothing else. Exactly. So this kind of brings us to what happened to Ben McDaniel. At the end of the day, there are basically three possibilities that have been tossed around here. That it was a diving accident, that it was a planned disappearance, or that it was some sort of foul play. We're gonna take a quick look at all of them, just to summarize. There's some pretty solid reasons to suspect foul play. One theory that you find on a lot of internet forums, and one theory that the police themselves considered at one point, was that Ben might have died during a routine accident at Vortex Springs, or even died in the cave, and Vortex Springs staff or patrons may have hidden the body to cover it up. I can kind of see where people are getting this idea. Numerous searches by divers much more experienced than Ben have repeatedly failed to turn up any trace of his body. As we mentioned, I don't know, actually, I don't know if we did mention this. Ben McDaniel was not a small man. He was six foot one, and he weighed 210 pounds. He was a pretty sizable dude. Big. Sturdy. The caves were searched by divers yeah. who were much smaller than him, who were wedging themselves into the tiniest crevices they could in order to look for his body. And so if divers who are physically much smaller than him weren't able to find him, it seems like it's at least worth considering that he's just not in the caves. Although Ben was not a licensed cave diver, he was well-researched on the subject of cave diving and had made numerous unauthorized trips into the cave before. Filling the tanks with regular air and leaving them near the cave entrance is a rookie mistake that seems very strange for someone so interested in cave diving. 
I mean, you can face serious medical consequences for doing this, and Ben had made dozens of dives. This is barely something an open water diver would do. This is amateurish in the extreme. I would know not to do that. And I learned how to dive as a teenager. In a swimming pool. In a swimming pool. And a lake. Anybody who's diving deep enough to have to undergo the decompression process should know not to use regular air. And the fact that he was routinely diving down as far as 310 feet, if he was using air consistently, it seems like he would have faced some sort of medical consequence at that point. But there's no record of Ben ever having issues with decompression. Again, they're using a gas mix that is either nitrogen mixed with 32-33% to oxygen, normal air is 22% oxygen, or they use a mix of 21% oxygen mixed with helium. (laughs) Yeah, it's gonna make your voice hilarious. I suppose huffing large amounts of helium doesn't matter so much when you're underwater and you can't talk anyway, so there's no risk of you giggling yourself to death. (laughs) You just gotta not speak to anybody after you get out of the water. I think the impacts of your voice on helium, um, I think they wear off pretty quickly. Oh yeah, no. Helium, the reason that it affects your voice is just because it's significantly lighter than air, so it would only affect you when you breathe out immediately. That's fun. This is like the science hour. Yeah. Also, cadaver dogs indicated there had been a body in the water, but there were no signs of decomposition when they were doing the bacterial testing which would be consistent with Ben dying in the water and then getting fished out and disposed of elsewhere. It's Florida. The places to hide a body are numerous and filled with alligators, so... And presumably, they would have a motive to move his body, even if the death had happened accidentally, because they've already been threatened with having the caves closed before. Yes! Look at you, preempting my notes. My next sentence was, <laughs> Vortex Springs had already been threatened with loss of access to the cave due to past accidents. The cave is a major draw for this site. They presumably stood to lose a lot if the government shut it down due to safety concerns. If Ben did die in the cave, it kind of feels like Vortex Springs was a little negligent in this situation. Yeah, I mean, it was broadly known that he was going out and he was doing this. That they didn't report it reflects poorly on them. They didn't really take any measures to stop him from forcing the gate. They also straight up unlocked it for him the day that he disappeared. They let him do a solo cave dive at night without credentials, without staff, or without any other divers around, and they unlocked the gate for him. It feels like that's something that they wouldn't want to be responsible for. The fact that he was going to do it anyway is a pretty flimsy reason to actively unlock the gate from an insurance standpoint. Children are gonna stick Cheerios up their nose no matter what you do. It doesn't mean that your daycare worker should help them wedge it up there. Like, you just- you don't need to assist people in doing stupid things. At the very least, you shouldn't make it easy. No, exactly. Don't butter their Cheerios. It also seems pretty convenient that the one night the employees didn't hang around to make sure Ben was coming back up is the one night he happens to disappear. Mm. And also, their alibi is each other. So... Yeah. And they're both equally complicit if something fucked up happened. Yeah, so it seems at least possible that Ben died on that dive and that his body was just covered up, was hidden to keep his death from being conclusively ruled a cave diving accident, or to cover up some sort of negligence on the part of Vortex Springs. The improperly filled and stored tanks could have been planted down there to make Ben look like a more inexperienced and foolhardy diver than he actually was, 
And it's also important to remember that the theory that Ben ran away to start a new life was advocated for, at least in part, by the two employees who last saw Ben and who allowed him access to the caves. Also, it seems sort of ridiculous that staff at a diving park with dangerous on-site caves would fail to be alarmed that the same car was parked in the parking lot for two days untouched. Especially because they would know his truck. (laughs) They did know his truck. He was a recognizable figure. It would be obvious if his truck specifically was there. Don't get me wrong, though. There's some pretty glaring issues with this theory. Probably the biggest of which was that the lack of Ben's body did not prevent people from concluding that this was a death by cave dive. It did absolutely nothing to change the public opinion of what happened to Ben McDaniel. The two people who most obviously might have done this... They themselves reported that last seeing him going into the cave. (laughs) Last seen going into a cave alone is not a good story to tell the cops if you're trying to cover up a cave diving death. Yeah, if you're trying to reduce your own culpability, you'd say, I don't know. The theory that Ben McDaniel left voluntarily to start a new life was floated and popularized by staff at Vortex Springs, but that theory has never gained a ton of traction except among true crime circles, even after the body wasn't found. Also, random divers who knew Ben or knew of Ben have also floated the maybe he left on his own theory. It, it just seems like if you were trying to cover up an accident in the caves, you'd get rid of the tanks and car altogether and just claim you have no idea when you last saw him. Alternatively, some people believe that the diving accident itself was staged to cover up something more sinister. Maybe Ben was murdered or abducted for some reason, and the employees of Vortex Springs, or somebody associated with Vortex Springs, intentionally staged a cave diving accident to cover it up. A cave system that cannot be fully mapped and has never been fully explored is sort of the ideal place to claim that you last saw your missing victim. Even though numerous diving experts have explored that cave extensively and have testified that Ben's body cannot possibly be in there, There's always that what-if factor that comes from the cave not being fully mapped or explored. It also seems like a pretty, again, huge coincidence that the one night Ben disappears is the one night that the witnesses say they decided to go for coffee, coffee late at night, instead of hanging around to make sure he was going to safely resurface. It could be completely genuine, I drink coffee late at night, I drink coffee late at night with my friends, but it's at least possible that this is just too convenient. So basically, this theory is one without any evidence to it. It's a possibility, but there's really no circumstantial evidence that would point in this direction. No, the only thing that possibly points to the words this being a murder... I mean, in fairness, the McDaniel family and the police have both considered this theory. This is one that the police themselves consider to be a possibility, that he was murdered and that the cave diving accident was staged so that nobody would investigate this as a homicide, that it would be investigated as a routine cave diving death. Well, it's something you do have to consider. It's just it, You have to consider it because- There's no evidence it, of it. <laughs> there is no evidence. The only evidence that points towards this theory is that Ben's body is not in the cave, according to everybody who has gone searching for him. If he's not in the cave, where the fuck is he? There's no evidence to point in any direction, so murder has been considered. Again, planting incorrectly filled and positioned dive tanks underwater could go a long way toward making Ben look like more of an incompetent and overconfident diver than he really was, especially when his own arrogance had already gone a long way towards creating that image for himself. The most popular theory, at least on the diving forums that I read through, seems to be that this was a deliberately planned disappearance on Ben's part. 
once again, there is no better cover story than disappeared into an unmappable cave system alone at night. It's very hard to falsify the fact that he died there. If you wanted to get yourself declared dead, honestly, this is a pretty solid way to go about it. You build up a reputation for being a bit of a reckless cave diver, and then you go out of your way to make sure that somebody sees you entering the cave alone. Maybe Ben went out of his way to make sure that someone saw him enter the cave, and he just got lucky that no one hung around to see him decompress. After all, the employees would only stay until they saw bubbles come up. Ben might not even have realized that they were in the habit of doing this. They were gone by the time he surfaced. Decompression takes a long time. By all accounts, Ben wasn't doing well, financially or mental health-wise, and it would make a certain amount of sense to just flee his debt and start over somewhere else. His family said that he was feeling optimistic about the future, but maybe this is a future where he flees the country and starts over. There's also the note you brought up earlier, the whole, like, promising them things, talking about how much he loves them. That's unusually emotional and unusually serious for, like, I just came home to visit. Yeah, it's hard to say how much significance to put on that without really knowing Ben as an individual, but yeah, he did leave kind of a cards-on-the-table, heart-on-my-sleeve note. I live apart from my parents. I visit them all the time. I've never left them an emotional note before I left. Again, I'm not Ben McDaniel. Maybe this is something that's completely in character for him. But maybe his note was saying, like, I'm off to have a better future in Mexico, and I will send money anonymously when I get settled. He did promise to take care of them in old age, but he didn't specify what form that would take. Everything that points to this being a staged scene to cover up a murder also applies to a possible staged disappearance. Again, the dive tanks could have been planted and the truck intentionally left behind in order to make this look like a diving death. Maybe he fled to the Caribbean or some shit and is teaching scuba diving somewhere where they don't check credentials. Again, though, there are issues with this theory. The McDaniel family had already gone through the heartache of losing a child when Ben's brother died, and the family strongly believes he would not have put them through that pain again after seeing how difficult it was for them. Also, Ben left his dog behind to effectively starve to death if it hadn't been discovered in time, and apparently he fucking loved that dog and would never put it in harm's way. Like, same, if I fake my death, my dog's coming with me. I would have a very hard time leaving her behind. I love this dumb little fuck nugget. I'd never put her in danger. Even if I knew it would look suspicious if my dog was just randomly left out with an absurd amount of food, I still would. <laughs> I mean, maybe he assumed that his disappearance would be noticed really quickly because the whole, like, wow, that guy we last saw disappearing into a cave, isn't that his truck? Like, maybe you'd assume that they would have, uh, they would have called the police before two days were out, but... The other issue is that Ben didn't exactly have the resources to start over. With what money and by what means did he flee? If you're intentionally faking your own death and fleeing to another state or to a foreign country, would you really leave $681 cash in your car? Especially because that cash would be untraceable. That's, all, one, an absurd amount of money to have on you at any one given time. But you could just, like, leave 50 bucks and people would just assume that was how much money you'd have had on you. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Cash is untraceable once it comes out of the ATM machine. Maybe he, even if he had withdrawn 700 bucks from an ATM earlier that day, 
they have no way of knowing. Like, you could have just bought anything with that. Given it to somebody. Who fucking knows? The other issue is that there have been no sightings of Ben after August 18th, 2010, confirmed or otherwise. It seems like it would have been difficult to become a highly publicized missing person and then just never, ever be sighted. Ben has now been the subject of numerous true crime documentaries. Uh, he's got a documentary unto himself. He's certainly famous among the relatively small diving community. And so if he's still out there somewhere, one, it seems like he would still be diving. But two, it seems like someone would have recognized him by now. Especially because divers as a group are fairly mobile. In general, like, these are people who travel around to see different places and experience different dives. This is an international community that talks to one another. You, people who dive in Mexico know people who dive in Africa. It's not that weird. Yeah, it, it just, it seems weird that nobody would have captured him on any sort of security camera. I don't know how much the police looked because, again, they went straight with the, like, this is a cave diving death for several months after his disappearance. Maybe nobody bothered to check the security footage. Like, maybe they weren't really looking at CCTV for the surrounding area. Like, maybe there is no... Uh, I know there's, there is security footage in the park, but yeah, maybe they just didn't check. But it, it seems strange that he could somehow get out of the city or get out of the country without anybody seeing him. Which kind of brings us to our last theory. The last theory is fairly straightforward. Maybe this is exactly what it looks like. An overconfident diver took a solo dive into a treacherous cave that he was not trained to explore, and it ended tragically. Again, we've, we've touched on this numerous times. It was a popular opinion that McDaniel was somewhat overconfident and somewhat overestimated his diving skills. Um, I've seen testimony that he did not have proper equipment. And although experts seem to agree that his body is definitely not in the cave, it's not entirely impossible that he somehow managed to get into one of the unexplored parts of the cave or that his body got sucked through some sort of current and he ended up somewhere that wasn't searched. Nearby swamps and rivers that share a water supply with the vortex were also searched in the days following his disappearance, but it is possible that something was missed. Solo cave diving has a razor-thin margin of error and it's not hard to imagine that something could go wrong. If you want to learn more about this case, and specifically you want to see the caves that he disappeared in, I highly recommend a documentary about Ben's case called Ben's Vortex. That documentary claims that cave diving has a higher mortality rate than any other extreme sport in the world. I kind of believe it. It sort of combines all kinds of things that can kill you. <laughs> Water, tight spaces, insufficient air, fun shit. Right, vertigo, confusion, rocks, darkness. <laughs> Deep pressure. Just all these things. All these things. So the documentary contains footage of the cave that Ben disappeared to because the documentary was made as the filmmakers made their own search for him. They initially kind of went in with this theory that, like, he's probably in there, and then they filmed themselves searching through the cave, and they explain kind of how the cave diving works, how the search worked, and what they make of it. It's it's a very good documentary. But maybe there is no great conspiracy behind the dive tanks. Maybe he really just was that shitty of a cave diver who didn't think that he needed to follow directions, and maybe he paid for it with his life. And it's entirely possible that he just fucked up where he got the air from. Yeah, he people make mistakes. People forget I don't know. shit. <laughs> 
it happens, and he, like, he wasn't trained to do this. At this point, it's kind of looking like we may never know. But, yeah. If you're interested in learning more, check out Ben's Vortex. It was made by a Canadian woman named Jill Heinerth, a record-breaking female diver who set a world record for deepest dive by a woman. We always get that Canadian content in there somewhere. It's coming. It's coming. It's it's coming. But yeah, that is the disappearance of Ben McDaniel. Uh, if you guys have any theories about what happened to Ben, if you want to take a crack at solving this case, by all means, reach out to us on our social medias. We'd love to hear it. In any case, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle. And we are Fat, Fat French, French and fabulous. fabulous.